0: today we're in James chapter 5 verses 12 to 16. We'll start with doing our memory verse. So all through the book of James we've started each sermon with the memory verses. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. It's the main point or the main purpose of the epistle. So you ready? Nice big voices. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this tremendous gift that you've given us. I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us the understanding. As we go through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. So last week, bit of revision from last week, we saw that James was warning the Christian brethren not to grumble or complain against one another. Especially during times of trial. Why? Because he says we're going to be judged. And last week we saw that the judgment he's referring to is a bema seat judgment. It's a judgment of rewards that all believers will face when we stand before Christ, when he comes to get us. So, this is not about losing our salvation if we don't treat our brothers and sisters in a nice way, or in a loving way, a Christ-like way, but we will lose our potential reward. Now, why does James speak so sternly concerning the way believers treat each other? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, the world is watching us. And we can easily blaspheme God's name when we treat each other badly. And John thirteen thirty four to 35 says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. And this is a key point here. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So, if we're not proving that we are his disciples, what else? Are we? What's the opposite? proving that we're not his disciples, right? And so people can use it as an excuse to turn away and not believe. Secondly, instead of building up the body of Christ, when we complain and grumble against each other, we are tearing down the body of Christ. We are destroying the body of Christ, the church. And this brings a lot of grief to the heart of God. God... Jesus has a lot invested in the church. It's very, very special to him. And God's perfect will for the church is described in Ephesians four fifteen to sixteen. It says this Instead we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And Jude puts what James says in James chapter 5, verse 9 in a positive way. He says in verses 20 and 21 in the book of Jude, But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. So you must build each other up in your most holy faith, whereas grumbling and complaining is destroying each other. And then last week, we saw that James gave us examples of those who are able to persevere during the trials. And that was the prophets. And we looked at the life of Job and saw how Job persevered as well. So let's read James chapter 5 verses 1 to 16. It will give us the background of what we're reading, the context. So James chapter 5 verses 1 to 16. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And now if he switches to talking about or to the brethren, the Christians. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the key in trials is to establish your heart. And we are looking for the coming of the Lord. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That was a beautiful study last week about Job, showing the compassion and mercy of God. Verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So the title of today's message is Life in the Body of Christ, Practical Application. So we're going to go through what it looks like to have a healthy body, a healthy church. So first of all, there's integrity. We need to have integrity. We need to mean what we say and to be honest. So verse 12, James chapter 5, verse 12 says, But above all my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. You remember Jesus talking about this in the Gospels? Quite often, James is just basically repeating what Jesus says in the Gospels. And we find Jesus teaching on this in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. It says, or Jesus said, You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, Do not make any vows. Do not say, By heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, By the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, By Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is a city of the great king. Do not even say, By my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, Yes
1: I will, or No I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. So what's the main point here? Just to bring it to a head here, what is the main point of this verse? David Guzik
0: sums it up well. The need to swear or make oaths beyond a simple and clear yes or no betrays the weakness of one's word. It demonstrates that there is not enough weight in one's own character to confirm their words. I'll read it again. The need to swear or make oaths beyond a simple and clear yes or no betrays the weakness of one's word. It demonstrates that there is not enough weight in one's own character to confirm their words. So if people aren't going to receive your yes or your no as a yes or a no, then it means that they don't really trust you. And then you have to go, but I really mean it, and you make all these oaths and promises to try and convince them that you're serious about this. But if you've got good character and integrity, and you've demonstrated that in the past, then if you say yes, it's yes. And they know you mean it. So verse 12 says, lest you fall into judgment. Again, James is right to the point. What judgment? It's the bema seat judgment. Any lack of integrity will be revealed at the bema seat judgment. Jesus says in the Gospels that everything that is hidden will be made known. It will be revealed, the good and the bad. So the bema seat judgment should motivate us to not only like last week, treat each other well but also to live with integrity. We will be rewarded for our honesty and when we keep our promises. And like it says in Psalm 15 verse 4, even to our own hurt. Now, in the Jewish culture, they had some kind of funny things going on. Do you remember being in primary school? I don't know if you guys had this same thing going on. And you made a promise to someone that if you crossed your fingers, or crossed your toes, or crossed your legs, or crossed your arms.
1: <laughs> it didn't mean anything. It means you weren't keeping your promise. It wasn't a promise you were meaning to keep. Well,
0: that's what the Jews did. If they said an oath or a promise, and they didn't use the name of God, for example, then they didn't mean it. If they did use the name of God, they did. It's like crossing your fingers, crossing your legs. you know. So, What we call this is a binding oath or a non-binding oath. And Jesus refers to this deception that was going on at the time when he was around in Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22. I just read that it says, Blind guides, talking to the Pharisees, don't you love it, talking to the religious leaders, and he calls them blind guides. What sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing. That means a non-binding oath to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. (laughs) How silly is that, eh? Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. And that you say to swear by the altar is non-binding,
1: but to swear by the gifts in the altar is binding. (laughs) And it goes on. So. What I need to show you here is that what we read in James
0: and what we read before in the Sermon on the Mount is not a blanket condemnation of making oaths. It is okay to use an oath. And there's many times that oaths or promises are used in the Bible in the correct way. God himself uses oaths. And in your notes I've got a whole series of references where oaths are used in a correct way in the scriptures. So again the main point is that here we need to have integrity. A yes must mean yes and no must mean no and any lack of integrity will be revealed at the bema He judgment. So let's move on to verses 13 to 18. It says this, is anyone among you suffering let him pray. Is anyone cheerful let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So, what is James encouraging here? Well, he wants the suffering to pray, the cheerful to sing psalms, and the sick to call for the elders of the church to pray for their need. So firstly, in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I've got a quote from John Corson. There's no way we can continue to justify our tendency to fault folks or to war against them with words, when James clearly tells us that the only solution to oppression is to look for the Lord's coming. In the meantime, when we're afflicted, we're to watch our words. Let them be yea, nay, or that's yes or no, and by all means, pray. So, watch your words. Let them be yea, nay, or by all means, pray. So, why do we often forget to pray. It's really basic advice. If you're going through a difficult time, pray. But why is it that our tendency is to, when things get hard, we complain? or we find fault with other people, we get angry, depressed, and anxious, and often obnoxious. So we miss out on the peace of God, of experiencing the peace of God that Paul describes in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, what? Pray about everything. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So when we pray, it's also about thanking him for what he's done. Reminding ourselves that God has been blessing us and will continue to bless us. Then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So, why is this advice to pray so important? Well, when we are weak, that's when we need God's strength the most. We need his strength, wisdom and guidance. And secondly, we are in a spiritual battle. We aren't warring against the people who we're fighting with or who are hurting us. We're warring against demonic hosts, and the last thing Paul has to say about the armor of God and fighting our spiritual enemy is the need for prayer. So I'm just going to read a bit from Ephesians six, verses ten and eleven, then eighteen. I'm going to skip all the other parts of the armor, but just go down to the prayer part. A final word: Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on all of God's armor, so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places it's very specific that's our battle that's where it is and then you skip down to verse 18 pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion stay alert And be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Why? Because we are in a spiritual battle against demonic enemies. So Satan is constantly trying to break things up. Break up marriages, destroy marriages, relationships, and especially between Christians, between believers in churches. He puts negative and destructive thoughts into our heads. Remember those fiery (laughs) darts? Yeah? Creates situations that can anger or irritate us, and he can use the difficult times to turn us against each other, and that's what James is talking about when he says we grumble and complain against each other. So we've got two ways to respond. We can respond to these situations
1: by fighting and arguing. When we do, we're playing right into Satan's hands. Have you heard of friendly fire in a wartime scenario? What's friendly fire? Yeah, you shoot your own. It's not very good, is it? But I think in the church there's a lot of friendly fire.
0: It's devastating. It's horrible. It's very sad and devastating to see
1: people on the same side, people who are saved, destroying each other, shooting each other. So instead of firing our
0: artillery at the enemy, we are firing at each other, destroying ourselves. And basically Satan is destroying us without firing a shot. He just gets us to turn on each other and we destroy each other. Marriages break down. Friendships become strained in unity, harmony and Christ-like love and selflessness. They become distant memories. But here's the other way of dealing with it. We can pray and then we gain the right perspective. And we also make available to ourselves God's weapons, God's resources, God's power and God's strength. Praying causes us to remember and to recognize who the enemy is. And so we direct our fight against the real enemy, the demonic hosts. And as a result, the opposite happens. Marriages are strengthened, relationships are restored. Unity is maintained. Remember, unity is a gift that God has already given us. Our job to submit to him and maintain that unity. And the church flourishes. Now move on to the next part of verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Now the word translated sing psalms there refers to public worship. Singing to God accompanied with musical instruments. And it's also used in Ephesians 5.19. It says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So that making melody is the same word. Now, is it okay if you're happy to pray? Or do you have to only sing? <laughs> no. It's okay. We can swap these around. For example, in Hebrews thirteen fifteen, talking about people who are suffering, it encourages them to offer the sacrifice of praise. I read it to you. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. So, have you guys experienced when you've been in a difficult situation, you can pray, which is good. But when you choose to worship, when you choose to praise God in the hard times, it's very powerful. Why? Because it's a sacrifice of praise. We don't feel like doing it, but we honor God with our
1: praise anyway. What's happening in our hearts? Well, if I choose to praise God in the hard
0: times, what I'm saying is that, God, I believe that this is good for me. That you're going to do something good with this. And I know that you're in control. I know you love me. And I trust you that whatever happens now, it's okay. So I'm going to praise you for what's going on. There's a casting crown song, I praise you in the storm. I am by faith declaring that God is good and that these hard times are what's best for me. He's gonna bring growth. I'm gonna become more like Christ. I'm choosing to submit and surrender to God's loving will for my life. Now, what about if I choose not to praise? What if I complain instead? What am I saying about God then? Romans eight twenty eight twenty nine says all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And his goal is to transform us into the image of Christ. If we start to complain when the trials come, what are we saying? God, either you're not in control, or you don't love me, or
1: both. This is terrible. God, I don't trust your promises. And we've got the wrong perspective.
0: We're forgetting who God is. We're forgetting that he loves us. We're forgetting that he's in control. Verse 14 says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So, previously, just read that the first thing you do is pray to God ourselves. But after we pray to God, if necessary, we seek help by going to the elders. If you can't find an elder, find someone who's mature in their faith. Now, why elders? Now, I've got an interesting quote from John Corson here. Why does it say elders, the plural, and not just one elder? He says this. James says it is the responsibility, the privilege, the opportunity, the command for the sick person to humble himself and to call for the elders. Notice the word elders is plural. When the sick are being prayed for, it is always to be by a group of men rather than one man individually. Why? There are few things more potentially dangerous than for a person to be used in the ministry of healing because what begins as a simple desire to be used by the Lord can so easily end up in book signings and a speaking tour. To keep this tendency in check, James says, when someone is sick, a group of men is to pray so that no one man will get the credit. I think it's pretty obvious what happens when the glory goes to someone's head and they start to do the tours and, you know, collect lots of money and live the high life. So, wise advice from James here. When you pray for people, try and have more than one person pray. Then you can't claim it was through you that the person was healed, it's through us. And then it says, let him call. So, whose responsibility is it to ask for prayer? A sick person, yeah. We have to exercise our faith when we choose to call on others to help us and pray for us. Now, this is a great example for me of how God has designed the church so that we are dependent on each other. We need each other. So I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians twelve twenty 20-27. It says, Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you in fact some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary now think about that some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary so if you think that you're insignificant in the body of christ remember this verse (laughs) you could be without realizing it the most necessary part of the body of christ Going down to verse 25. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honoured, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Now, coming back to James, verse 14, James chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now we've got an example of this anointing with oil when you're praying for people in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus sent out the disciples to proclaim the Gospel and in Mark 6.13 it gives a description of what they did. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So why oil? Why use oil when praying for people? Well, there's two possible explanations. Probably both are true. Firstly, the anointing oil in the Bible symbolizes the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the oil was used to symbolize the anointing of the Holy Spirit when the priests, kings and prophets were anointed with oil before they assumed positions of authority. That the Holy Spirit was going to enable them to do the job that God had given them. Secondly, oil has medicinal properties. And the example that we have in the scriptures is Luke 10.34, where the Good Samaritan uses wine and oil to dress the wounds of the man who was left for dead, the man who was beaten up by those robbers. So I think that James is encouraging natural remedies for healing as well as seeking supernatural
1: healing. So there's nothing wrong with going to the doctor if you feel sick. Pray where you can. If possible, pray first. But, you know, I know there's been
0: some bad teaching on this. People say, don't go to the doctors, just pray.
1: Look, if you're having a heart attack, call triple zero and then call the prayer chain, okay? (laughs) All right, in verse 14,
0: it says, in the name of the Lord. So, in the authority and the character or nature of the Lord. That's how
1: we pray, in humility and respect and submission. Verse 15.
0: And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. (laughs) Now, it's very
1: interesting to me. The prayer of faith will what? Save the sick. Not heal. Why did he use the word
0: save there instead of heal? We get a clue in the next line where it says, if he
1: has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Do you think that James has more than physical healing in mind? Yeah,
0: it's not just physical healing. It's also salvation. It's also talking about restored relationship with God. So I don't believe that this is saying that there's a blanket promise that anyone who requests prayer from the elders will be physically healed because there's a spiritual side to this as well. So I'm going to try and show you that that's true. I don't just take my word for it. We use scripture to interpret scripture. And unfortunately, there's many who have used this verse to justify the belief that everyone who has faith will be healed. So I'm going to go through some scriptures and see if that's true. I want to try and show you that Physical healing is a matter of God's will and not just of faith. It is true, faith has a part in it, but it's also depending on God's will. So I'm going to use Paul as an example. He had great faith, he was a man of great faith, the Apostle Paul. And he prayed earnestly three times for God to heal him or deliver him from his infirmities, his sickness, But God said, No. So Paul then accepted God's will and put up with his infirmity or sickness for the rest of his life.
1: Paul said that the reason for God not healing him was, do you know? To keep him humble. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And depending on God. And this is a very good reason
0: not to be healed. And I would guess that a good number of the trials that we go through are for the purposes of keeping us humble and depending on God. That's a good thing because if we're not depending on God, we're independent of God and we're not going to be experiencing relationship with God. I'd rather be sick and in relationship with God than well and independent of God, living for myself, being miserable. So here's Paul's testimony. Here's what he said about his experience of not being healed. 2 Corinthians twelve seven 7-9 Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, So, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. (laughs) Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Remember that we have this treasure in earthen vessels? If the vessels really special and beautiful then you're not going to focus on the treasure inside but if the vessel is all broken then it's obvious that it's not the vessel that's doing the work it's not that the vessel's amazing it's the power in the vessel which is amazing and good that's god so continuing in second corinthians it says so that the power of christ can work through me that's why i take pleasure in my weaknesses, in my infirmities, in my sicknesses, and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's obvious to others around that the strength that Paul is demonstrating is not his own, it's God in him. God working through him. And I just want to focus on Paul's attitude of submission to God here. Notice how Paul not only accepts but also embraces God's will for his life when he says, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. What a difference. I've heard people complain and, oh, please pray for healing. I'm sick of this thing. You know, it's such a burden. No, you can turn your burden into a pleasure if you
1: realize And understand the purpose behind it, you see. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My relationship with God is stronger. God is
0: able to use me more. Verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick. Now the word there for save in the Greek is sozo. The Greek word sozo, it means to save, to keep from harm, to preserve, rescue, save from death, bring out safely, free from disease, heal, deliver, keep alive, prosper get on well, save or preserve from eternal death, to bring salvation and to bring to salvation. That's what the lexicon meanings are, the Greek dictionaries. So I'm going to give you three examples which are typical of how the word sozo, the Greek word sozo, is used in the New Testament. Which demonstrate its regular
1: meaning and why it's quite irregular for James to use it here. So Matthew one twenty one. And Mary will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name
0: Jesus, for he will save Sozo his people from their sins. So again, very clear there that it's used in a spiritual context, forgiveness. Matthew fourteen, verse thirty. But when Peter saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save, or sozo me. So what's Peter asking for? Deliverance from doubt, deliverance from seeking into the waves. Mark 8.35 For whoever desires to save, or sozo his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, will save, or sozo it so we deliver our lives by losing it we preserve our life by losing it so basically i'm just saying that to point out that when james uses the word sozo in james 5:15, it includes physical healing but it also includes spiritual healing as it mentions the forgiveness of sins So, James is clearly communicating that prayer will bring both physical and or spiritual healing. Now, if James had wanted to communicate that physical healing would always result when the elders prayed for people, he could have used a different Greek word. And there's a Greek word called therapeuo. You've probably heard that word, therapeutic, yeah? Well, that comes from the Greek word therapeuo. And that means physical healing. Is specific to physical healing, and here's an example of where it's used. And Jesus said to him, "I will come and heal or cure or Greek therapeuo him." And if you go through where that's used in the scriptures, it's always used in the context of physical healing. So why would I go through all that? Well, I just want us to have a good understanding, a correct understanding, of James five fifteen, so we don't have false expectations and therefore false hope when it comes to physical healing. Now, how do we pray when someone comes and they say, would you please pray for me? First of all, you find someone else to pray with you,
1: pray in a group. So if God does answer that prayer, if he chooses to, you can't take credit for it. Well,
0: we simply pray that God's will be done. We might pray something like, God, if it is your will for Bill to be healed of his cancer, Please heal him. But if not, please give Bill the grace and strength he needs to persevere through the trial. Simple as that. A humble, submissive prayer. Not doubting God's ability to heal, but allowing him to be sovereign and to have his will done. Submitting to his will. Now we move to verse 16. This is something that's really important. The importance of confessing our sins to each other. So verse 16 is, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So, confession of sin. It's a really, really important principle or practice that makes for a healthy body of Christ, a healthy church. Now, a couple of things to note. We don't just confess to another, but we also pray for one another the two go hand in hand. if you're confessing a sin to a brother or sister, then obviously that's a weakness and the right thing to do would be to pray for that person so they can be strengthened. They may also need encouragement and accountability, so that's why we pray for them and the result of confession and prayer is spiritual, emotional, and physical healing. And David Guzik says, Confession can set us free from the heavy burdens, physically and spiritually, of unresolved sin and removes the hindrances to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 16 it says to one another. So I'm going to focus on this little phrase quite a lot right now. I'm going to point out three things about to one another, which I think are quite important. Now, firstly, why do we need to confess our sins to one another and not just to God? Have you asked yourself that question before?
1: Because confession of sins to one another breaks the power of secret sin.
0: Why or how? Sin causes us to isolate ourselves from each other because of the shame involved in sinning. Yeah, The shame causes us to withdraw from others and to close up. Now, we can be still going to church and putting on a nice face, but effectively the fellowship is gone. We are now pretending we're hypocrites. We become like the coal that has been removed from the fireplace, the ember that has been removed from the fireplace and it's placed by itself outside the fireplace on the hearth, It's away from the heat of the fire and what happens to it? It dies down, it goes black, it goes from red, glowing red to
1: black, it
0: grows cold. Isolation. So even though you might still be coming to church and putting on a nice face, if you and not being real with the people around you, then you're actually separating yourself from those people at the spiritual level. It's really important to understand that. So another way to say the same thing, another way of describing this, is to say that one of Satan's greatest strategies to defeat even the strongest and most faithful of believers, and sometimes it's those believers who have been faithful for quite a while that this works best with is his divide and conquer method. The person sins, Satan condemns them, and they listen to and believe Satan's lies and condemnation, and they give up. They give in to the shame. They believe that they're no longer good enough. They've gone too far. That God can't use them anymore. That they're worthless. And that God won't forgive them, or God is angry with them. Any one of those things. So, what's the difference between God convicting us and Satan condemning us? The conviction of the Holy Spirit hurts. Yes, it does hurt, but it causes us to want to come back to God. Satan's condemnation, on the other hand, pushes us away from God. So if we're feeling something and it's causing us to not want to go back to God, that's condemnation. If we're feeling something going on because of our
1: sin and it's causing us to want to draw near to God, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Think about Hebrews 4, 14-16. After
0: you have sinned, because we all do. I do, after we have sinned, I should say. There is no shame before the throne of God. I'm going to say that again. There is no shame before the throne of God. Only mercy, forgiveness, compassion, and acceptance. So let's read Hebrews 4, 14-16. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So Jesus understands. If you fail, if you fall, he knows what it feels like. He's been tested the same way. For this reason, verse 16, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will, not might, but we will receive his mercy And we will find grace to help us when we need it most. The promise is there. We will. It's not might. Not if you improve yourself a little bit or take some steps. No. Just come as you are. I'll say it again. There's no shame before the throne of God, only mercy, forgiveness, compassion, and
1: acceptance. Think about the prodigal son. What happened? The prodigal son, what? He repented and then started to go back. To the Father,
0: and the Father ran to meet him. So let's read a bit of that story. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, I will confess. Okay. To so here's his confession. Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant so here we have the confession of the wayward son and he returned to home to his father and while he was still a long way off his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion he ran to his son so, so what does it just say filled with love and compassion he ran to his son embraced him and kissed him now what did i say before there is no shame at the throne of god Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned both against heaven and you, and am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the
1: party began. Now, secondly, when it says to one another,
0: we confess to one another, we don't need to confess our sins to a priest to be forgiven. So there's lots of people, you probably know who I'm talking about, who believe that they must, in order to be forgiven of their sins, confess their sins to a priest. But the Bible doesn't go along with that. The Bible doesn't say that. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. There's one God, one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. So to receive forgiveness, we simply pray to God and confess our sins to him. Jesus is our mediator, not any human priest. Okay? And that's why we have this wonderful and comforting promise in 1 John 1 1.9 it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay. So again, think about this. Who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? Only God is because only God can. Alright? Only God is because only God can. Think of the Time in the Gospels where Jesus was speaking in the room and they lowered the man through the roof. And the Pharisees were correct when they thought to themselves that only God can forgive sins. Listen to the stories in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) He didn't say, You're healed, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Remember they were thinking this, right? Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? Well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because no one can test that, right? Verse 10, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I will prove to you that the Son of Man, Jesus himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Only he does, because he's God. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. What did Jesus just do? He proved to them that he was God and that he had the authority to forgive sins. Done deal. Now we ask the question, so why do we need to confess our sins to each other if the Bible says in 1 John 1 nine that we only need to confess our sins to God to be forgiven and cleansed? Well, the answer is that the confession to one another is not to receive forgiveness, but rather to receive healing. It doesn't say, confess your sins to one another and be forgiven. It says, confess your sins to one another and be healed. Healed from what? Healed from the effects of sin and to bring about the restoration of relationships that were damaged because of the sin. Again, verse 16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Not forgiven, but healed. We pray to the Father for forgiveness. We confess to each other to have restoration of relationships. So we need to do this so we can experience the restoration of fellowship and healing from the spiritual, emotional, and physical consequences of sin. Jesus also taught confession to one another. And even he says the goal is reconciliation. Matthew five twenty three to 24 it says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Be reconciled to your brother. If you've done something to your brother, you need to go to him and be reconciled. So confessing our sins to one another is all about making things right with each other and getting the extra help that we often need in our battle against sin. That's what we do, to be healed, to be whole. All right? It has nothing to do with obtaining forgiveness from God. So, example to put into perspective. I might lie to my brother. He gets hurt. Our human relationship is broken. I first confess my sin to God and I am forgiven. My relationship with God is restored. However, my relationship with my brother is still broken. Even though God has forgiven me, I still need to confess my sin of lying to my brother so he will forgive me and the human relationship can be restored. Now the last thing, the third thing, about to one another, confess to one another, is we must be careful as to who we confess our sins to. David Guzik is very wise when he says, Confession is good, but it must be made with discretion. An unwise confession of sin can be the cause of more sin. How can that be? Well, there's a few reasons. First, we can cause someone else to stumble. They may not be mature enough in their faith to handle what we will tell them. Or they may be currently weighed down with a huge trial and not be able to handle your confession at that time. Secondly, a person may be prone to gossip. And if you tell them something, it's going to not result in healing, it's going to result in harm in the body of Christ. And thirdly, here's a principle to remember. Only confess your sins to those who have been hurt by your sins. Only confess your sins to those who have been hurt by your sins. If you've hurt two people, confess to those two people and leave it at that. And don't have to confess to the whole church. If it's a secret or hidden sin, then find someone you can trust and share them the basic details of that. You don't have to go into all the gory details. And fourthly, be careful when becoming vulnerable around the opposite sex when you confess. It can lead to unhealthy and inappropriate relationships. So it's better for ladies to talk to ladies and men to talk to men. So as an application today, how do we put all this into practice? This goes back to the first verse we did about integrity, about being honest with people, right? Ask God to reveal anything that may be hindering your relationship with him or with another person. If there is anything against another person, then go to that person and confess. If there is a secret sin, a hidden sin, then find someone you can trust and confide in them and pray with them. Doing this will restore the sweet fellowship and unity that Jesus died to give us so father help us this week lord to reflect on these verses confess your sins to one another and you will be healed so help us to pray for one another and to experience the healing of our relationship with you the experience of healing of relationships between each other Lord, there could be emotional healing involved. There could be even physical healing involved. Lord, we just pray that we can be men and women of integrity, Lord, and not fake, not pretenders, not hypocrites. But Lord, we will be real with each other. If there's something that's causing us, if there's an offense, help us to be willing to deal with that. Give us the strength to deal with those things to resolve those differences so we can resume and restore that sweet fellowship, that unity, that bond of the Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. Help us to maintain that, Lord, and and never let anything break that for more than a short period of time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.